0: Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 51 through 53. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich... He has sent away empty. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's pray and ask him to bring it alive. Heavenly Father, we know that the words we read were spoken by a peasant girl so many years ago. But we also know that the fact that they are in this your word means that they are indeed breathed out by your Spirit. We know that you're speaking directly to us. And not only do we want to study the Word in its context, and and as it was being spoken back then, we also want to apply this to our own situation, the world we live in, and especially when we consider our own worship and the aspects of that worship. Lord, teach us through these words this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, you know, actually we sang some of the verses earlier in our songs quite uh, appropriately chosen. Because if you remember last week, we took a look. I read just sort of an extended passage from the fourth chapter of Revelation where John, in his vision, actually gets a glimpse of heavenly worship. And we've been talking about worship, so uh, it gave us an idea of the kind of worship that's going on. Now, uh, let me just return there for a little bit, and I want to go deeper into Revelation as well. But if you remember, John saw a a vision, an, an apocalyptic vision, which means it was designed to give us an impression, to form an image in our minds of God on the throne or the throne room of God. And of course, you know, God has no form because he's spirit, but there were four Four spectacular creatures that surrounded the throne, the fact that they have seven wings makes us think that they are angels, seraphim. But nonetheless, these mighty creatures cry out all day long, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, as he continued with that vision, you remember that there were 24 thrones that surrounded the throne of God, and on these 24 thrones were 24 elders who had 24 <laughs> crowns upon their heads. Now, we're not exactly sure who those 24 elders are. Some Most people think that it's a combination of the 12 disciples and the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Israel. Of Jacob. Um, or it could be the the complement of priests. We're, we're not 100% sure. However, one thing we do know is that these are the bigwigs of heaven. I mean, these are the important guys. They have these thrones right around the throne of God. There are no human beings, and we assume they're humans, who are closer to God than these 24 elders. Now, Here's what I want you to see about what we, in, uh, we've visualized here. In the ninth verse, John goes on and says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne Saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, what I specifically want you to notice here this morning is I don't think you can get any closer to God than this vision it gives the example of. So, therefore, these saints, whoever they are, are the, of the most privileged of any human beings who have ever lived to be in that close proximity to God. But notice something. Notice how they worship notice their reverence notice their humility as they pour that they fall down before the lord now whatever those crowns represent they're coming off their heads and they are being thrown before the lord this is a picture brothers and sisters of absolute humility in worship now if we go deeper into the text of revelation to the 19th chapter Closer to the end of the book, we see a very similar scene from the 19th chapter starting in the fourth verse. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying amen, hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, don't miss that. These are those four creatures, those four angels with eyes all around and crazy apocalyptic heads and seven wings who are right next to the throne of God. How do they worship? In what manner do they worship? What position do they take when they worship God? They fall on their faces. I mean, they are prostrate upon the ground because they understand the holiness and the power and the might of the one they are worshiping. So once again. We see true worship as something that is absolutely bathed in humility. Now the reason I bring that out is because I believe that that's exactly the same kind of humility. That Mary is giving us in this Magnificat. That is her song. She is very, very humble. And that's what she is presenting. The humility of worship. And we're going to take a look. We've already seen a couple of attributes of worship in this song of hers. And we're going to look at a third one this morning, which is that true worship is humble. After we go through the text and we establish how deeply rooted this is in the Old Testament, we're going to kind of step back and look at our own worship, modern worship, contemporary worship. And we're going to ask ourselves, is that humble Is that one that's bathed in humility or perhaps is it arrogant? Now, Mary is going to use kind of two different um, foci or focuses, if you will, this morning to bring that out. First, we're going to talk about the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. And that's going to sort of roll into a discussion of the kingdom of God, which, of course, is a very important um, a message that Luke gives us and the fact that God is the sovereign of that kingdom and the fact that the kingdom is an upside down kingdom. Now to put this into its context, just remember that Mary has already been overshadowed by the Holy Spirit of God. There is an embryo growing in her room. It is Jesus the Christ and she has made haste to go and see her relative Elizabeth who also is with child in a miraculous way being o- older and not able to have the child under normal circumstances. But Mary is singing this wonderful, wonderful song to the Lord. And we've noticed two things about worship that, that comes out. First of all, we noticed in those first two verses that worship emanates from within. It is not external. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. In other words, it is not something that can be manufactured. It comes from a heart that is truly, truly in love with God, truly with in love with the Lord. A heart that has been redeemed and is not at enmity with God. And and, and we even saw that if, if we if we take an external approach. Approach to, to worship, whether it is through formalism, whether it is through legalism, whether it is through some other kinds of mechanisms that we worship in a, in, in a, in a, in a way that really isn't being worshipped by redeemed hearts, that God doesn't look at it as worship. It, it, in fact, it's an abomination to him. Now, the second thing we noticed about worship, and we talked about this last week, that worship is (laughs) God-centric. Worship, I, I know that sounds like that should be obvious. But it's not. God is the focus of her worship. She is exalting God from one be- the beginning of this song to the very end. He is the complete focus. Now, there's four things we looked at last week that came out in this song. And, and it really kind of revealed uh, not only something about God, but something about Mary. First of all, we saw that he was almighty, all-powerful, the omnipotent God. But at the same time, he was... A personal God. He was intimate to her. He did good things for her. And then we found out that God is holy. That means he's set apart. He's incomprehensible. He's knowable, but incomprehensible, unapproachable in that, uh, that, uh, that light that he lives in. But then at the same time in the very next sentence, or words, she says he's merciful. And we talked about the boundless nature of that mercy. There's no depth. There's no end to it. Now, in that, we noticed, as we have been noticing all the way through this particular song, that Mary has an amazing grasp of Old Testament scriptures, which of course were the only scriptures that she had. She has an amazing grasp of it for a teenage girl from a podunk town who didn't own a Bible, never had a Bible herself to look at. She would only get it from behind a screen in the synagogue, and yet she had internalized the Word, meditated on it, and she has filled this prayer with references to the Old Testament, which we will bring out again this morning. But the second thing we noticed about her was an amazing grasp of theology, because not only did she pick up the facts and the references, she has represented God in the first part of this prayer as being the transcendent God who is not of this world, but the eminent God who is in this world. I mean, we've talked about God's transcendence and his immanence in many different formats. Well, here we have a teenage girl from Nazareth who is telling us about the transcendent imminent God's. Now where we ended last week was the importance of our own hearts when we approach God in worship. And I, I had a few words about that at the beginning of, of, of our worship this morning, because not only is when God, when we talk about God's holiness, we're also talking about a being who perfect in his holiness must be wrathful at sin. And so therefore we deserve his wrath and his condemnation. But because of his mercy, because of his son Christ, because of the salvation that he brought through. Through Him, And the invitation to that salvation that he has extended to us, we do not experience that wrath. So that heart should be the heart of worship. That's the way that we should approach him, is knowing that we have no right to be here. You're going to have a hard time, brothers and sisters, being arrogant if that's your approach when you worship the Lord. Well, with those as sort of the background of where we are, we're going to move into this third idea, which is the humility of true worship. And um, that's what Mary is going to say. So let's take a look here at the the 51st verse and and just the first part of that verse as we begin. Look what she says. She says that he has shown strength with his arm. Now, she's already talked about his power, but I think this is a little bit different when she talks about it with these words. Now, we all know, we know that God is spirit, so therefore we know that God doesn't have an arm. Um, And most of you know this. If you're not, there's a big word coming. Uh, This is an anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism just means that we're taking a human attribute and applying it to God, something he doesn't have, but something that helps us understand him just a wee bit better. And so when Scripture speaks of God's arm, his hand, He's talking, especially his right arm or his right hand, he's talking about the power of God. The ability that God has to accomplish whatever he wants to through his own power. But it, it, it doesn't just necessarily speak of the existence of that power. When you talk about the arm, you talk about an action. You talk about power in action. And so therefore, it, it, it really speaks more of his providence than just the raw power that he has. Throughout Scripture, this is used in a multitude of ways. First of all, it's quite often used to speak of the creative power of God, the one who created all that there is. For instance, Psalm 89 goes like this. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand, high is your right hand so therefore the psalmist is talking about the power of god in creation but it can also speak of the power of god in destruction remember god uses that power to create but he also uses it to destroy things like After the crossing of the Red Sea, you may remember. Can you imagine, first, let me just, I'm not going to get off on a rabbit trail here. But can you imagine being one of those children of Israel walking through that, that sea with the water piled up on either side and you're walking through on dry land? Do you think you might have a better understanding of the power of God if you were there? Well, after they made it across, and they look back, and they see the armies of Pharaoh coming at them, and all of a sudden, God brings the water back down upon them, destroying them. Well, that's when Moses and that congregation sang a song of their own. And they say this, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. But now that I've given you those two examples, I don't think that actually Mary is using the discussion of God's arm in that way. Because not only does God have the power to create and he has the power to destroy, he also has the power to sustain, to preserve. The reason the universe exists is because God preserves it and sustains it. The reason that the Christian church exists is because God has preserved it and sustained it. And, and that puts it in more of a Spiritual sense than just a a physical sense. Isaiah, for instance, puts it this way Break forth together into singing you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So in other words, what we're seeing here is a discussion of the providence of God, God's sustenance, God's provisions, God's preservation through his mighty arm of his people." Interestingly, if you were here over the holidays when we had that discussion of the holiness of God, we talked about the providence of God quite a bit as it was the outworking of his eternal decree. Well, that is what I believe that Mary is here referring to. Now, when she says that, for, um, uh, for he has shown strength with his arm, um, she is establishing here one of the fundamental principles Of Old Testament theology. And that is the power of a providential and sovereign God. To look after and sustain his people. Jumping to the New Testament. But a New Testament image of the Old Testament. I just read it to you. I think we sang it earlier from Revelation 19.6. When they cry out hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. When they say that, that Doctor Sproul points this out in his um, commentary. That is establishing the basic principle of Old Testament theology: that the universe is a kingdom, and that kingdom has a single, solitary sovereign. And that sovereign is God and God alone. So right at the very beginning here, Mary's going to kind of begin to talk about the kingdom and the upside-down nature of that kingdom. But right in the beginning, she makes reference to the providence of God. Now, when we start talking about the providence of God, it's really hard to pick out any verses that, that about that because the whole Bible is almost about the providence of God sustaining his people. But I think one of the ways that it is particularly revealed to us is through the covenants because each and every covenant is beautifully, first of all it speaks of the providence of God, so it's right in here, but at the same time it has something to do with what's going on with Mary right now and the reason that she is singing this song. For instance, the covenant that God made with Noah all those years ago. He says this, "...while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease." Now, what God is telling Mary in that, I'm sorry, what God is telling Noah at that particular time is, yes, I just destroyed sin by destroying most of humanity. I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to allow springtime and harvest to continue until I bring the ultimate solution for sin. And guess what? That ultimate solution for sin is now growing in Mary's womb. He is the Christ, the Son of God. Same thing occurred when he made the covenant with Abraham you know this from the 12th chapter of Genesis where he says I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you I will curse you will be blessed and all the families of the world will be blessed through you I'm going to sustain in other words your posterity I'm going to make sure that from, from your family comes the one who will bless all of the world well of course we know that once again that blessing is growing right now in Mary's womb and that's the reason she's singing this song. Moses, the same thing when God made that covenant it was uh, focusing on keeping the law and the feast days well God says this in Exodus 23, you shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from among you and none shall miscarry or be barren in your land I will fulfill the number of your days. In other words, keep my commandments and I will be my, your God and you will be my people. And ultimately, I'm going to bring the one who will release you from the burden of the law by giving his life as an atonement for you on the cross. Once again, pointing to the child in Mary's womb. Finally, there was the covenant he made with David, once again, promising that the people would have a place and that there would be a member of David's family who would rule and reign forever. Well, Second Samuel, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own places and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more. And he goes on to say, I will establish for you a house, your legacy, your dynasty. And of course, we know because the angel Gabriel just told Mary that he will sit upon the throne of David. He is going to be the fulfillment of all those things. That's what makes this so beautiful is this is so integrated. And this little teenage girl is giving us a lesson in how the Bible is tied together. Well, we see that that. So therefore, we see that There is a providential plan that God has. There is a kingdom over which God rules and is the sole sovereign. But in our world... Remember, we're getting to the upside down nature of the kingdom here. But in our world, usually when kings are total despots, when they, and that word is actually used of God, uh, that total, complete, total control, well, they'll lord it over the people and there will be tyranny that will result. Not in this kingdom. Because the best situation that can possibly be, the best governance, is a benevolent, loving, gracious, sovereign king. And that's what the Bible tells us that this child in Mary's womb is going to be. He's going to be the king of kings, but he's also going to be a shepherd king. A king who cares for, providentially looks after those who are in his care. Boy, Ezekiel has some things to say about that in the 34th chapter. I'll skip over all the things God has to say to the bad shepherd. And finally he says, here's what we're going to do. In the 23rd verse, he said, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Well, you know that David's been dead for over 500 years when Ezekiel writes this. So he's not talking about David being on the throne. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the child in Mary's womb. And of course we know that Jesus famously spoke of this when he described himself in John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So I know that's an awful lot to pull out of just a half a verse. But when we start to speak of the providence of God and the kingdom of God and the sovereignty of God, you're almost just whacked off the whole Bible, because the Bible really wants us to know about that particular nature of God. But now she's going to turn her attention, as we get back to our text, she's going to turn her attention um, back to the the coming of the kingdom and the nature of that kingdom. Look at the end of verse 51. Um, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now, Mary has already discussed her own humility... She's already discussed the fact that God looks after those who fear him, and he extends mercy from generation to generation. But we notice something about that mercy that she's already talked about. We noticed, first of all, that it was boundless, that it was limitless, that not only does generation to generation talk of longevity, but it also talks of degree. There's no bounds to God's mercy. But that does not mean that it is all-inclusive. That doesn't mean that it is extended to everyone because Mary makes it clear. It is extended to those who fear God, who fear him. Talking about humbleness or humility before God. Now, we can assume or imply that the reverse is true that those that mercy will not be subjected to or given to. Now, I'm not talking about in a New Testament context because I wouldn't be here if God only gave mercy to those who feared Him because I didn't fear Him at all. He, he pulled me out of the sewer uh, kicking and screaming. <laughs> so I'm not putting that in the, in the New Testament context of Christ. But we can say from this text that God does not extend mercy to the arrogant and the proud and she 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 kind of opens up a can of worms there because it opens up one of the truly great sins of humanity and something that is absolutely Um, adverse to the nature of the kingdom of heaven. God in the kingdom that Mary is about to tell us about and that Jesus and Luke is going to make one of his primary themes is a God who does not share power. He does not share the throne at all. In Isaiah 42, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other he gives his glory, he gives his power, he gives his sovereignty to no other. He is the sole supreme king. And if you don't get that, you're not going to get Mary's humility or the exaltation of God in this particular song of hers. But what it brings out is the fact that of all the sins that we commit, of all the things that we do wrong, one of the worst is pride. And you know the reason that pride is so bad is because it, 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 of what it says to God. Now, the scripture is pretty clear about how God feels about the proud and the arrogant. Proverbs puts it this way, pride and arrogance I hate, says God. Jeremiah puts it this way, hear and give my and give ear, be not proud, for the Lord has spoken, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. Why do you think his soul weeps for your pride? Because your pride is devastating. It is devastating to you and it is devastating to a relationship. With God. Oh, the Bible is so filled with examples of how pride um, works against us. Probably the most famous example. And those of you who were part of our Daniel study may remember this fourth chapter of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar himself starts telling a story about himself and how Daniel was part of it. And he said, Daniel came to me and warned me about my arrogance and that I shouldn't be this way, but I didn't listen. And so this is what he says. Now, he goes out on the parapet of his castle and overlooks his magnificent city of Babylon. And this is what he says. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Brothers and sisters, that's pride. And (laughs) this is what Daniel says. While the words are still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And at that moment, for the next seven years, Nebuchadnezzar crawled around in the fields on all fours, thinking he was a cow eating grass, until the Lord restored him. God just, he just cannot abide arrogance and pride before him. And we're going to talk about arrogance and pride and worship In just a bit. But those of you who are part of our Act study on Wednesday night, we've just, we've just been up against this. We've just seen it. Because when Peter and John return from the Sanhedrin after being on trial, spending the night in jail, the first trial and night in jail of the apostles of Acts, they sing a song. And they sing the song from Psalm 2. And this is what they say. Why did the, angel, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against our Lord and against his anointed. Now there they're speaking specifically of Herod and Pilate and the Sanhedrin, okay? (laughs) And they're virtually naming them by name. But the reaction of God to that kind of arrogance and pride, all we have to do is go back to Psalm 2 and see what the answer to that is. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill, who's that king? It's the child in Mary's womb, being brought right back out. A part of this, you know, why pride is such a an egregious sin um, and for anyone, believer or unbeliever, because what it does is two things simultaneously: pride before God is what I'm talking about, arrogance in the face of God. It, it, at the same time, it diminishes God, brings Him down, tries to deflate His glory, which is impossible, but at least in the mind of the one who is being arrogant, it pulls God down and it elevates or exalts the creature. And one of the worst things that a creature can do to the creator is to exalt themselves to a position of importance that is equal with that creator. Brothers and sisters, this is the epic sin of humanity. It's also the epic sin of heaven. Because that was what caused Satan to be thrown out of heaven. It was his pride. It was his arrogance. It was his rebellion. It was his desire to be like God's. And you remember that it's the epic sin of the Garden of Eden and the fall. Because you remember what Satan did. He came into the garden and he told Eve when he got them, her separated from Adam. He said, he said you know, this, this, this fruit is so good. Have a bite and eat. And Eve was good. She said, no, our, God said as soon as we eat that we're going to die. And you know these words well, but this is what the serpent says. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. In other words, you can be like God, brothers and sisters. That is the ultimate arrogance. The ultimate arrogance of a creature is to desire to be like their creator. We're not like our creator. We're made in his image, but we are not like him. We are the creature. He is the creator. And so, therefore, it is the egregious sin that brought about the fall. But it is also an egregious sin that makes itself evident all throughout Scripture, I mean, Cain, why did he kill Abel, his brother? Because he was arrogantly, his pride was hurt because his sacrifice was not accepted. Why did they try to build the Tower of Babel to get to heaven? It was pride and desire to be like God. Why did Pharaoh not allow the children of Israel to leave? It was his pride that held it there. Why did Nebuchadnezzar get sent out into the field? We just read that. It was because of his pride. Pride caused Absalom his life, didn't it? His arrogance before God's anointed, that that one being David. So all throughout Scripture, we see this idea that 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 pride is one of the most egregious sins that can be committed. But one thing Jesus has made absolutely clear, brothers and sisters, is it will not be so in the kingdom of heaven kingdom of heaven is upside down it's not like any other kingdom on earth it is a kingdom where the first are last and the last are first the rich are poor and the poor are are, are rich that the weak are strong and the strong are weak everything is upside down in the kingdom of heaven now in the world we live in the powerful lord it over those they suppress but not in the kingdom of heaven That's what Jesus said in Matthew when he said, But Jesus called them to to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life, As a ransom for many. And so therefore. The stage is set here. At the end of the 51st verse. For a discussion. Of that upside down. Nature. Of the kingdom of heaven. I told you Mary was pretty. Pretty good in her theology. But let's read the 52nd verse. He has brought down the mighty. From their thrones. And exalted those of humble estate. He's brought the mighty down from their thrones. Now, the thrones that she is referring to, more than likely, are the thrones of the local potentates. There were an awful lot of petty dictators in those days with little city-states and little countries of their own. And so she's referring to those who are arrogant before God. He brings down from the thrones because Daniel also told us in his second chapter that there's, there's only one being in the universe that establishes authority, and that is God himself. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He is the one who establishes who's going to be the king. So, in other words, in the kingdom, it, it, it appears that God is going to look after the little guy look after the lowly, look after those who are normally stomped on. It is the, 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 the king of this kingdom is going to actually exalt the humble and lift them high. This is something that David seemed to be well aware of in his Psalms, reading from Psalm 138. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. We're going to talk about trying to worship God with a haughty spirit in a little while. And what an abomination it is to stand before God with any kind of an attitude other than humility. But David, even though he was the king, I don't think he ever really forgot that he was a shepherd boy from Bethlehem. Or those years that Saul chased him around all over southern Judea and he hid in caves. David had an intense understanding of his own unworthiness before God and the fact that God did indeed watch out for the lowly. I think that he always considered himself to be lowly. Now, also, just looking for uh, Old Testament background for what Mary is saying so that you continue to see her using Old Testament, we've already talked several times about how Mary's song very closely resembles Hannah's song from 1 Samuel. Once again, Hannah makes this exact same point when she says, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. And isn't Hannah little Hannah, who had such a rough situation. She remembers she had, there was two wives to her husband, and she was barren, and the other wife was a baby factory, and she's just praying, God, would you please just give me a son? That's her song when she she has one or knows that she's going to have one. She is the epitome of what it means to be feeble what it means to be lowly. And that girl, that teenage girl from Nazareth, the unnamed town who is now pregnant without a husband, she also is that picture of feebleness. Well, anyway. She goes on in the next verse, the 53rd verse, which will be the last one we look at this morning, and changes the metaphor just a bit, but it, it is an important change. He says, or she says, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. I, I should say that God doesn't have anything against the rich, it's um, not specifically the rich that, it is, or that she's talking out against here, but rather the arrogance that often comes with wealth, the the pride that comes with riches. That is where the egregious sin is. Once again, this is something that virtually was, was stated word for word by Hannah when she says, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. What what we're seeing here again remember the providence of god remember him sustaining his people we're seeing that god is the champion of the poor and this is this is not only hannah's prayer but mary's prayer this is a th- Theme constantly brought out for us. Isaiah puts it this way. We've read this several times. God speaking, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrites. God loves a contrite and a humble and and a broken spirit, and that is of the greatest significance, because only those who are broken know they're broken. Only those who are hungry know they're hungry, and this is the, this is the situation. The rich don't know that. Again, not, nothing against rich. But usually the rich have all the food they need. Now, of course, we know that this is not just talking about physical food. It's talking about spiritual food. But this is something that Jesus made absolutely clear when he taught the Sermon on the Mount. He started it out this way. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt because they know they're empty and they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be uh, satisfied. And and, and if you think, if you already think you're full, if you already think you've got all the spirituality and religion that you need, well, you're not hungry. And so, therefore, you're not going to get filled no matter how um, anxious or or how uh, blessed that is. Now, once again... This is something that Mary would have been fully aware of because it is an Old Testament principle. What I read you earlier in the moment in the word from Isaiah, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Well, he's not talking about physical food there. He's talking about the spiritual food. And this was virtually repeated word for word by Jesus. You remember in the 7th chapter of John when it was time for the Feast of Booths. This is what we hear on the last day of the feast, the great day. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And Famously in the 6th chapter, he said, I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is what is provided to those who are hungry, who are needy, who are humble, who are broken, who are bankrupt spiritually, and they know that they can't fix themselves, and so they will turn to the only one who can fix them, once again, the baby in Mary's womb. So beautifully tied together with all of Scripture is this song. Well, that's also a good thought or a good place for us to step back from this and to put into the perspective of pretty much what we've been doing throughout all of Mary's song. Now, you may have already noticed this, that I've been using this song as an opportunity to talk about worship. Because if there's one thing the church needs to concentrate on, folks, it is worship, and I know that sometimes people don't like for me to, they think that perhaps I'm being critical when I point out the problems that exist in modern day Christendom. But, but it, it, if, if it is opposed to Scripture and, and you don't speak out against it, then people might think it's absolutely normal to worship that way until they look at what is said in Scripture and they realize, oh my goodness. I'm I'm worshiping God in a way that cannot possibly be designated as worship. So I want to just remind us of the two things we've learned so far before we got here this morning. We have learned that true worship must be from a heart that loves God. must be from a redeemed, regenerated heart that is known by God and knows God and loves Him. And that if we make our worship and call it worship and we design it so that Pagans will be attracted. People who don't know God. Now, evangelism is important, and I'm not saying evangelism is not important, but when we gather for worship, worship by definition is the saints, the people of God gathering together to exalt him. And you can't worship if you don't know Jesus, just like you can't take the Lord's Supper unless you're one of his disciples. And so we learned that true worship is from the heart. Then we learned that true worship exalts God. It is God-centric. And it has nothing to do with you or with me. When we gather together to worship, we glorify God. That's what worship is. To exalt the God of heaven, the created universe. And then finally, what we have learned today is that true worship is humble. And, and, and by implication, that says that true worship is not arrogant. And that's what I want to spend a few minutes on now. Because I want to hold up our worship, the worship of our culture, the worship of Christendom today. And I want to ask the question, is it humble or is it arrogant? Is it full of humility, bathed in humility, or is it prideful? And standing before God. Well, brothers and sisters, I, I hate to say it, but I, when I look around quite often, or when I visit other churches sometimes, and, and I, I don't, don't get me wrong. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with being a celebrity pastor. And might, I'm not beating on celebrity pastors just because I'm not one. Um, there are a lot of really wonderful, humble celebrity pastors. So I'm not saying that, but there's also a lot of strutters out there. There's a lot of people full of themselves. There are a lot of people strutting around on stage with a haughty attitude and a haughty way of presenting worship. That's not true worship. True worship is not haughty in spirit. It is not arrogant. There are several different sort of categories that we can look at when we talk about arrogance in Scripture. I mean, in, in worship. And a haughty attitude is simply not one of them. You cannot be haughty. Now, once again, I'm not talking about music as music, okay? Please don't get me wrong. But quite often, music is abused in worship. Music has been made the main attraction in worship. And if it is the main attraction and it is not the exaltation in worship of God, then it is not true worship, now, I've, I've been through this myself here. Uh, very shortly after I got here, I've been here 16 years, for those of you who don't know, but very shortly after I got here, we needed an organist. And and, and I remember sitting down, I was, I was sort of the new kid on the block at that time, and sitting down in the council meeting, they're actually talking about hiring an organist from the newspaper. And, and my question was, is he saved? No, he doesn't need to be saved, we just need an organist. We just need someone who can play the organ. Are you kidding me? You can't have someone leading worship who doesn't know Christ, who's not saved. Same thing with, uh, we were presented with a drummer one time. We need a drummer. He's a great drummer. Is he saved? Does he know the Lord? Does he need to? Well, absolutely. So in other words, if you have a professional Band a professional light show, a professional of uh, screens behind and you 're creating a, a sensation of, of entertainment that isn 't necessarily worship if it is being put on by pagans for pagans i mean that 's ridiculous, so therefore that 's arrogance that is an arrogant way for people to worship. I was in haiti one time i 've told you this story many times where visiting pastor from Chicago was up there. Haitians didn't go for it very well at all. I was surprised. They, they really had a negative reaction to him because he stood up. He read one verse from Isaiah. He shut the book and he said, now let me tell you what God says today. God's speaking through me, not through the Bible. We're going to shut the Bible. I'm going to give you a new word from God today. And, and, and I've told you before in Haiti, it, it is rude. It's rude not to amen after every third statement. I mean, you, you, if, if you say something and there's not an amen in the crowd, you know you've laid an egg. There wasn't an amen for the rest of the morning. Um, for for the, He was a lovely gentleman. I mean, he was as sweet and as kind as you could be, but he just had the, the wrong idea about worship because he believed that he was speaking for God. If you're not, spe- if you're not speaking for the word, and you say you're speaking for God, you are not speaking for God. Because the word is the way God speaks to us. The The same thing, I wouldn't even go into health and wealth preachers that are walking around saying that, you look at me, I, you can be like me if you're really holy and you donate to, to my ministry. It's a Ponzi scheme, it's not worship. But I think a, a, even a congregation, brothers and sisters... If we approach the Lord with the wrong attitude, if we come to worship and we're not, our hearts aren't there for exalting God. I, I, I asked you last week, why are you here? What brought you to this place on this day? What purpose do you have for being in worship? If there are the wrong reasons and you're there so that you might be fulfilled, that you might have some kind of an injection of spirituality, it's the wrong reason. That's arrogant. That's arrogant. Because we have gathered together to worship God. So arrogance or worship does not have a haughty spirit by any stretch of the imagination. By the same token, um, uh, arrogant, I mean, um, arrogance can, can be how do I put this to be filled? To already be filled? I mean, that's what Mary says when she says that um, He has filled the hungry with good things and in the rich, and the rich He has sent away empty. Do you know why people get sent away empty a lot of times when they come to worship? It's because they're already filled. They don't need anything, they, they're not hungry at all. I mean, they're, they're here for a different reason, but they're not filled because they're already full of themselves. When you come to worship, you come empty and broken and bankrupt because you know that you have no right to be there. And the only reason that you're here is because Jesus died and paid the penalty for you and suffered immeasurably on the cross to pay for your sins. You can't think about that and be arrogant like that Pharisee. Remember the story Jesus told? We'll talk about it later in Luke where two men went up to the temple to worship And there's a Pharisee, and all he could say is, thank you, God, that I'm so wonderful. Thank you that I am so full of piety, and I I tithe, and I do all these other things, and thank you that I'm not like this bum over here, the tax collector, who, of course, was pounding on his chest, begging for mercy. And Jesus said, only one of those men went down from that place justified, and it was not the Pharisee. And so, therefore... To be filled means to be empty. You know what I think about when I think about this? About people going away empty because they already are so full of themselves when they come. I think about, we're spending a lot of time in Revelation this morning. I think about the church at Laodicea. Remember that church? That's the church that Jesus said, I wish you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm, so therefore you make me sick. Oh my goodness. Can you believe Jesus would say that about a church? You make me sick, so I spit you out of my mouth. This is what he says about why they go away empty. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That person's going to go away empty from worship. You're not going to get anything out of worship because you already come filled with yourself. And you're here for a different reason. That's arrogance, brothers and sisters. That is not humility in worship. Third thing that comes to mind when we talk about arrogance in worship is that true worship does not manipulate God or try to manipulate God. And once again, I look around me and I see this as a major problem in churches because people are trying to manipulate God all the time. You see, if I go to church because I need to have an emotional experience, and I'm going to call that emotional experience the Holy Spirit, now I'm not saying that you don't feel the Holy Spirit in your emotions. Boy, you do. But if you try to manufacture that If you try to create an environment that people will think that that's the Holy Spirit working, you're trying to manipulate God in worship. It may not be the Holy Spirit at all. You you don't need the trappings, brothers and sisters, for the Holy Spirit to work. They didn't have any big bands going on at, at, at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came in power and moved all those people The most worshipful times that I have ever had in my life have not been in big churches. They have not been in cathedrals. They have not been where there's an amazing band or a wonderful organ. The most worshipful times I have ever experienced have been in the grass huts of Haiti, where people, and I'm thinking of one time, it was in a place called La Victoire, And it was during the week, and it was a night, and we went there. And it was an abandoned clinic. It was just an empty building. But it was chocked full of farmers and their wives and their children. One little bitty kerosene lamp. And one by one, those people would walk up to the front of that church, and they would sing a cappella. Songs that they had written. Songs that they had learned. Their voices were untrained. In fact, for the most part, they were just plain old bad. Oh, my goodness, but it was the most gorgeous, beautiful music I have ever seen. And the Holy Spirit descended on that place. And it was filled with the Holy Spirit with none of the trappings. You don't need to manipulate the Holy Spirit to make him come. Just humble yourself. Throw your crowns down before God. Well, the final point that I want to make, and again, I'm sorry if this offends anyone. Well, actually, I'm not sorry, but I, I, I don't want to offend people. But then again, I, I guess I kind of do. Um, because I would rather, I'd rather be true to Scripture and have you not like me than to, to try to make you feel good and to talk about some kind of worship that really isn't worship. The last thing that I want to talk about, and this is a biggie, True worship is not ignorant. Let me quickly explain what I mean. Am I talking about people who are challenged intellectually? Am I talking about the very young? Am I talking about those who have no resources and therefore don't have a Bible and can't know the Bible fully and completely? Or people who do not have the capability to absorb it? That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about planned, orchestrated ignorance. I don't want to know anything about what the Scripture says. I don't need to know anything about what the Scripture says because I have Jesus. And I have Jesus in my heart, and that's all I need. I don't need anything else. Well, you know something? You are right. That's all you need. I'll tell you, that's all the the thief on the cross had was Jesus in his heart. And that's all that you need except, brothers and sisters, in the world that we live in. James tells us that if you do not have a fruit, a, a manifestation of your faith, if you don't love the Lord and love to know about him, if you do not love his scripture and want to find out more about him, then chances are you do not know Jesus. So you can't just say, I love Jesus, and it it addresses the current problem of biblical illiteracy. We are raising a a whole generation of people who never cracked the Bible. I was given a seminar not long ago. On the, it was very politically oriented, but I'm, I'm not political at all. I try to stay out of politics. But it was talking about the authority of God. And I was using Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 to talk about the fact that if we rebel against God's authority, we're rebelling against God. I I, I thought, I I didn't know that I was going to get out of there unscathed. Because people kept saying to me, you said this, you say this, you say that. And I said, wait a minute, I didn't say it. Have you never read Romans no, I don't need to read Romans. I've got Jesus and that's all I need. And let me tell you something. I heard this. If that's what the Bible says, well, the Bible's outdated because what the Holy Spirit tells me is different. And what the Holy Spirit says is authenticated and authoritative. Brothers and sisters, how do you know it's the Holy Spirit? <laughs> It might be a spirit, but it doesn't necessarily mean the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never, ever, ever contradict the Scripture. Ever. Will it ever? (laughs) Jesus says, he will bear witness of me, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have told you. The Holy Spirit will never contradict himself, never contradict anything that God said or that Jesus said, but will rather uphold it, bolster it. So therefore, if you are, are, are disagreeing with Scripture, you're disagreeing with God. one more story. We have reached a stage in this ignorance, this arrogance. I don't need your scripture. I just need Jesus. We have reached a stage that it is almost medieval in its scope. During the Middle Ages, the priest told the people, you don't need to read the Bible. It's way over your head. In fact, it's in Latin. <laughs> and you're Germans, and we're going to give the whole service in Latin. You think I'm boring. Imagine sitting through this thing if you didn't understand a word that I was saying. Okay? So there was this entire situation where you don't need to read Scripture that is being replicated in our day. I heard the story just last week from a counselor that I know. A young woman had come to her in angst. Totally, totally torn apart on the inside. And she was saying, I need someone to explain to me about my sinfulness. I understand mercy, but I've been reading Genesis 3, and I need someone to explain to me about the fall because it talks about sin, and it talks about God's wrath and punishment and curse. And I, didn't, I, I had no idea this existed. And so this counselor said, you should go to your pastor. And she said, I did. You know what he told me? He said, you need to shut your Bible. You don't need to be reading that Bible because you can't understand it. Here's a nice fluffy devotional. It'll make you feel good and you'll go through your days happy. You don't need to open scripture. And brothers and sisters, I wish that that was an isolated incident. It's not the statistics about how people read their Bibles is oh, it's very disappointing to say the least. But, brothers and sisters, Jesus said this. For all of those who say, all I need is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that speaks just as strongly to the one who has created their own Jesus in their own mind. That Jesus is not the way, folks. There is one Jesus, and he's the Jesus of Scripture. And he speaks of a narrow gate and a hard road, not a broad gate and an easy road. There is a Jesus who says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's a Jesus who loved and adored the Old Testament scripture. and said, of all the commandments that have ever been written, the most important one is that you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the heart of worship. Come with that kind of heart. And stand before God in humility. If you worship any other kind of Jesus. And you call him Jesus. And you say that's all I need. And you have no desire to study him in scripture. You run the risk of standing before him. And hearing the words that no one wants to hear. I never knew you. So i leave you with a formula. It's the formula that Mary has put before us. If you exalt yourself, God will humble you. If you humble yourself, God will exalt you. You don't have to exalt yourself. You don't have to manipulate. You don't have to create an aura of holiness Humble yourselves. Throw your crowns down. Just like those great creatures and those 24 elders, get on your face and humble yourself before an all powerful and merciful and gracious God. And He will exalt you. Let me tell you something. When God exalts you, you'll know you've been exalted. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us of our shortcomings because we know we we do fall short in our worship. And there are so many different degrees, and I've just pointed out some of them here. And we know that um, in one way or another, no matter how hard we try, we're still going to fall short. There are going to be days that we come with something else on our mind. There's going to be days that we're not worshiping you. There's going to be days that we have our own needs, and we know that. But help us to understand that it is not through trying to fill ourselves that those needs are filled. It's by worshiping you and throwing whatever they are, needs, crowns, concerns, fears, doubts, whatever they may be, throwing them at your feet, humbling ourselves before you, allowing you to do the exalting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.